Let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. All right, chapter 2, verse 1 through 23. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child and his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And after having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to try to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, the angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. Father, thank you for this beautiful, glorious revelation. Thank you, Lord, what had been looked at from a variety of different positions historically, these prophetic statements 
we now see, Lord, in your own good timing and according to your own good pleasure, you have centered them and revealed them in Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Father, that as the Scriptures tell us that you have ordered all things, administrate all things in heaven and earth, in heaven and on earth to reveal Jesus. And so we give thanks, Lord, that we this day are able to see that vantage point. As Jesus said, men and women, or prophets and wise men, long to see what you see before you, but they could not. And so I pray, Father, that we will give thanks for that. If nothing else, we give thanks that we are in the position we are, where we can understand, we can grasp, and we can see the relevance <clears throat> of the entirety of Scripture as is found in Jesus, our Savior and Lord. We glorify you today in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> I would like for you to um, give some attention to Luke chapter 2 and verse 1 through 7. It's going to play a key role in our text today. This is the synoptic parallel to the Matthew 2 passage. Verses 1 through 7. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. That's in, again, Luke chapter 2, verse 1 through 7. We note that in the Gospel of Mark, synoptic Gospel of Mark, there is no narrative, no, no uh, nativity narrative. We start with, the John, with John the Baptist, Jesus going to John the Baptist to be, to be baptized. And also in John's Gospel, there is no uh, narrative, no a narrative of the nativity. We um, again pick up with John the Baptist. First, there's a, a theological introduction of the nature and person of who, who Jesus is, his incarnate nature, but then very quickly it introduced, and there was a man who sent from God, his name was John, and we see that beginning with John the Baptist. So both Matthew and Luke take this unique role of looking carefully into the, um, the time frame of Jesus' birth. We see this chapter, or this text, um, open today and by saying it's after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, Magi came. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea. After. There is a conflict in many people's eyes here. It is an obvious conflict with the assertion that the wise men came to Jesus many years later. 
probably between the time when he was two years old. And it's based on that statement we read this morning that Herod calculated by what the wise men told him of the approximate time frame that he um, that the Messiah was born in Jerusalem. But as we try to harmonize these two texts of Matthew and Luke, and harmonization is simply just like a song. You know, they don't have to sing all one melody, and, um, but they can sing a harmony. So you have soprano, alto, tenor, and bass. They don't all sing the same notes, but they're singing basically the same story. And so the harmonization of the synoptic gospels is often called into play because they're not, apparently, not a lot exactly alike. That's the some will say those aren't exactly alike, therefore something's wrong, someone's made a mistake. And as a result of making that mistake, then the Bible is shown to have mistakes because of its human, or, human origins. And as a result, the mistakes then are transferred to the whole of the Bible to show that it's all untrustworthy. And that's how we have people that will very quickly go from the small, very small, to the great when it comes to the Bible especially. And so it's, it's like reading a, bi- a book and, you know, you're enjoying the book, but you find a misspelled word. You ever find a misspelled word in a printed document? I found a few. I'm sure my wife finds a lot more than me, but I find a few. Karen's a great editor. Um, can you imagine saying, I'm stopping this right now. This is, this is a piece of junk. Because if this word's spelled wrong, I can make the assumption that every word here is wrong. Well, they wouldn't do that with a book. No one does that, ever. However, with the Bible, because we're recognizing its own nature, its own messages, that it is inspired by God. For all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. All Scripture. And it's profitable for doctrine, reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. See that in Timothy's, um, the epistle of Timothy from Paul. And so it, it falls under a different scrutiny. And often that scrutiny is very unfair. And there's many things we can talk about. We won't talk about like the subject of the Apostles' Creed. By the way, thank you for that clarification. Um, I remember, just as an aside, I remember when we first did this, and it was like a couple of years ago, I think, and um, I had several people come and said, so now, we're, so now we're Catholics? And I said, no. In fact, we're still protesters to the Roman church. Did you know that? Are you Protestant? We're protesters to the Roman Catholic church. And so as a result, the word is not capitalized. It's Catholic Church. In fact, that Apostles' Creed was written before the split in the church. It would be, it's offensive to an um, Eastern Orthodox universal Catholic, which they believe the Eastern Orthodox is the only church. The Eastern Church and, of course, the Western Church, which was Rome. And so, like Roger said, it takes a long time, but that's, I'm not going to get into that right now. So. But no, we're not... Roman Catholics, um, far from it, we're, we do believe in the universal church. If you go to another place, in fact, we're kind of an interesting mix. Not everybody here speaks English as their first language, so we shouldn't assume unless you speak my language, you're not really a Christian. But it's the universalism of the gospel that we celebrate together, that, that Christ makes us have an identity, Christ brings us into unity. And so as a result, that's the universal idea of the Catholic Church and the Apostles' Creed. Um, but I'd like to hear those explanations sometime, Roger. It would be interesting. But not during communion, maybe, okay? <laughs> All right. And so as a result, we see this idea of 
two of the Gospels, now we read both of them today, did you, did you have any sense of a different kind of a feel for both of them? Hmm? No? Didn't bother you at all? Well, then I have nothing to say then, I guess. <laughs> well, it, it, it's maybe not bother us, but it bothers a lot of people. People, especially if you're looking for something to be bothered by when it comes to the Scriptures. And so as a result, I just want to take a moment to show the harmony of these two things. Um, without the presupposition, just looking to the Scripture and saying, what is this showing us? What are we hearing from the Scriptures as we listen to the Scriptures being read? Versus, I believe that the Magi didn't come for two years until after the birth of Jesus. If you say that, you're taking your position, your presupposition, you're imposing on the text, and you create, by that presupposition, a conflict when there is no conflict there. It's, um, it's very clear if we, if we see the, um, the gospel of Matthew and Luke, Luke's narrative begins with the visitation of the angel Gabriel to Zechariah and Mary regarding the births of John the Baptist and Jesus the Messiah. It picks up with a decree for a Roman census to be taken, which Joseph, who lived in Nazareth with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child, he responded by going to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. They, they did the census in Israel by going to your ancestral relationships, your ancestral genealogical connections, and that's how they took the census that way. And so even if your wife wasn't born in Bethlehem, wasn't part of the household of, of Bethlehem, you were required, required to take her with you and so that accounting could be made much different than we do here. We go door to door and just count everybody without any kind of um, organizational um, idea like that to start with. And so as a result, in Matthew's narrative, we discover that the Magi viewed the baby Jesus in Bethlehem after his birth. Now that is not, that is clearly said here, right? It, it was one thing if it, if it said they visited Jesus after his birth. But note that the scripture says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of Herod. There are these time stamps that are put there for a very specific reason. So that we can see that these two Gospels, number one, are not contradictory to one another. They just take up a different approach. They, they, even all four Gospels, for that matter, they just come into the Gospel narrative in a different way. As we harmonize them, however, especially Matthew and Luke, we see a huge body of information that Matthew, if we only had Matthew, would not have. And if we only had Luke, we would not have. I mean, imagine not having the genealogy of Jesus, for example. Or imagine not knowing about Zechariah or the visitation to Mary. And all these things happen. As a result, we could, if we read the one that doesn't have it, we can see how these things enlighten the text itself. And so, so as a result, there is a harmonization that takes place after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod. That's what the Scripture says plainly, that Magi came from the east to Jerusalem. And we see in this study of the Magi, it's a fascinating thing to look at the Magi. Um, there's a lot of historical information about the Magi. There's, no one knows who the Magi really were, but there's a lot of historical um, assertions about who the Magi were. Um, they were called 
in this text, in the, in the Hebrew language, excuse me, in the Greek language, they're called kings or great men or magnanimous men. These are all fall into the range of meaning for the word that's translated kings. And so we think of these persons as being the kings of certain nations someplace or the multiple kings in a single nation. Um, but in some ways it's a little bit misleading because that kind of language for kings didn't appear in translations all the way through 600 years. The 6th, 7th century, they were, they were still calling them priests or great men or something like that. It wasn't until the more um, broadly um, used translations came out that they called them kings, particularly um, the, the um, Latin Vulgate Bible and also the, um, the King James that followed it and so forth. These, so the idea of a king, we even see it in our pictures. We see three guys with you know, kings, things on their heads, and they kind of walking through, and, and um, we celebrate the three kings, and we have a, a song, right, that we three benefactors, uh, no, no, the three, three kings of Orient are bearing gifts we traverse upon. Um, very likely these three persons, because of the context they also bring, it says, we saw, or, or first of all, they came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? Now, who are they asking? He says, where is the one? Well, they came into Jerusalem and they start asking around. They start asking a lot of people about where is the king of the Jews supposed to be born? Who is the king of the Jews? What does this mean? Well, it shows two things. It shows that maybe they had some kind of connection to Hebrew Scripture because of the text we read from Micah this morning during the reflections time that there's going to come one who was going to be a king. He was going to be a ruler. He was going to rule over Israel. Well, who is over Israel right now? Herod. And he's called by Rome, what? The king of the Jews. Is he Jewish? No, he's not even Jewish. It was a, it was a monetary, political placement that took place. And so the people everywhere already hate Herod. However, Herod has some pretty powerful influence in the city and over people. And so here's these three persons. We'll talk about them in just a half second as we get to that. But they're going around, they're talking to everybody about who is the king of the Jews? What's the answer you're supposed to give? Come on. Herod's the king of the Jews. Yeah, okay. Well, Jesus is still prenatal, George, so... <laughs> That's the right answer, but he's prenatal at this point. And so as a result, we see this kind of a stirring taking place as these three persons are showing up in town. Um, obviously, have, they have wealth, they have prestige, and they have a lot of inquiry, and they have a lot of knowledge. And they're from the east. Typically from the east didn't mean Saudi Arabia. Why? Because there is no Islam yet. So there is no, there's, there's Arabia, but there's no Islamic states. There's none of this stuff. These are persons who came from the east, and the east is typically a phrase of Persia. 
Now, you can see then the connection of how they might have known something about the Hebrew Scriptures because they had some guests that they had in Persia. They had to fight a war against Babylon to ask the guests to come and live with them. (laughs) They, They destroyed Babylon. Persia, under Darius, destroyed... Or, or no, not Darius. Yeah, Darius the king. He destroyed Babylon in order to conquer it, and he took the spoils of Israel, took them to Persia, and they were there for just a couple years. I think it was something like 70 years. They lived there. They, they and, and were indoctrinated into the culture and so forth, although they kept stayed separate from their he, by their Hebrew faith. But as a result, Persia had this kind of a beloved relationship to Israel. Now, by this time, it was kind of a distant, beloved relationship, but you notice these three guys from Persia, they didn't come to the gate, and they arrested all three of them. No, because there was an, an openness to this kind of trade. Not sure why they were there or what they were doing, but instead of saying things like, we have a lot of money, we want to make some trade for some things that are only common to this region, you know. You got any barley? You know, we love barley bread. We want to take barley bread back for all of our friends because we can't get that anywhere in Persia. No. They were coming and they were not sure what they wanted until, fi- until they started talking about where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? So Nate and I only know that their, their supposition, I should say, is not only that Jesus is going to be born in Bethlehem or this king is going to be born in Bethlehem, but this king is already born. Now where did they get that kind of information from? Well, they're astrologers. And at this time, astrology and astronomy, it's still claimed to be, astrology and astronomy were mixed together. One was the resource for the other. Astrology being the study of the universe, its contents, both the earth and then outside the earth. And astronomers examine the positions and motions and properties of celestial objects, they see them in relationship to one another. There's a kind of, they try to formulate calculations on when they line up in certain ways that they can see things, understand things. And they attempt to study how these positions and motions of the stars affect people and events on earth. And at the time of this writing, these persons, these priests, these Wealthy persons, it was, it was considered to be a religion. The divining of the heavens was considered to be a religion. And as a result, these persons were observing things carefully with calculations and maps and so forth, and something new had happened to them. They had discovered something new as they were doing their calculations. And by the way, the, the back, one of the backstories on these priests or these persons of this religion, of this religious, it's not, it's not really religion in the standpoint of, but it's religious, you know, it has, a, it has a fervor of the divine to it, because they felt that the Almighty, the, 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 the God, and of course there's lots of different gods at this point, these gods are leading them by these things. And something showed up, it was new. Notice, something showed up was new. We saw his star when it rose. Notice, his star. A star we hadn't really observed before. A star that was not in our calculations. This has been been going on for hundreds of years, this practice of astronomy and astrology working together. And as a result, they had seen something new. Something new has been revealed to them. And we say, well, now you're getting really kind of spooky, Pastor, because, you know, we don't believe in all that stuff. 
Well, uh, Psalms 19, what does it say? Someone got a Bible they can return there? Psalms 19? What's the very first thing it says? The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim His person or character or majesty. The work of His hands. The heavens have a message. Well, here, you know, that's what the Bible says. These guys are seeing this message. They're seeing something here. Does that mean I'm, I'm affirming astrology and astronomy today? Um, not completely. As it points to this, I, I, I'll go so far as to say, let's stay with the Scriptures, and certainly something very peculiar is taking place in the minds of these persons. And Persia is no 10-minute hike to Jerusalem. It literally is over land hundreds and hundreds of miles on the fastest thing you could get besides your feet was some kind of an animal. And so as a result, these persons are not only just calculating things in Persia, but it says they're being led, led by their calculations. That their calculations are somehow leading them to another calculation. As they move toward the west, they're seeing another calculation, and another calculation, and another calculation, until finally their calculation comes to an end. And it just happens to come to an end over a little town called what? Bethlehem. And so these three, you know, scientists, priests, were there to try to do something they had was also a part of their, their, their process, and that was to try to find, for, better, for lack of a better word, saviors, persons who would rise up and would be a benefit to humanity in some place, and to identify great people. Astronomers, long before Alexander the Great, for example, identified him as a, as a ruler that was going to rise up and he was going to be a great blessing and a great you know, conqueror came later, but a great, a great leader among the, the world. And they would come from a distance. It, it was part of, their, part of their process. They'd come from these distances to find this person as early as they could and somehow to basically kind of bolster his success by giving him money, possessions, things. Which is a very curious thing because... We don't see anything later about Joseph being a rich man. We don't see anything about Jesus having a, 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 you know, some hoard of wealth. And so the gold and the frankincense and myrrh, um, although, you know, of course, how many of you got in a great big, huge payday and thought, man, I'm set for life until life set itself on your payday and you found yourself not quite in the same place after a fairly short period of time as you were at the beginning. But this was the, the, kind of the background of these persons who were followed to this place. And so they go and they start talking about not, you know, can we buy things from you? Can we set up trade arrangements? We're here to, you know, try to um, increase our own wealth. But they give the impression very quickly they have wealth and they want to find out something of very important to them so that they, of course, they're not giving away all this information. It comes from the, from the context itself. But they wanted to find out who this person was, if this person was there, and could they somehow come and serve him in his rise to whatever position he would, be, would rise to. Um, to such a point that, it says in verse 3, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed 
and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, this is just a wealth of information right there. Well, how did King Herod hear about this? How did the king hear about this? Well, it became so broad broadcast and there was such a network of people, they didn't have you know, cell phones, things like that to help them talk. They just had to get, actually talk to people, you know, living people. And um, as a result, this somehow came to the ears of Herod, especially the idea of something that he was very sensitive about being. I can almost hear him telling the Jewish council, whenever they had a problem, I am the king of the Jews. Oh, that must have just gripped them and grinded them in their hearts every time he said it. Because first of all, he wasn't a king. His wife, or excuse me, wasn't a Jew. His wife wasn't a Jew. We said this some time ago. All his kids that were going to come weren't Jews. In fact, it was just a messed up family with a lot of money and a lot of architectural knowledge. And as a result, there was this tension. You can see that, that statement that all, everyone was disturbed, all Jerusalem with him. And he called together whose, whose priests? The people's priests. So again, you see this distant, this tensious, tense relationship that existed between the chief priests, between the religious sect of, of Israel, and then here now the political side, which they, in part or parcel, made a great deal of took a great deal of effort to be sure they weren't in his camp. They weren't political. They were religious. Although, when you look at them closely, chief priests, Pharisees, they were very political too, weren't they? We all, all we have to do is go back to our studies of Mark and see how, the, how political the Pharisees were, how they just spread out to find dirt on people, report it back so they could have people on their, on their heels so they could gain this, this power that they seemed to thirst after. And so they, they, he asked them, don't you think the king of the Jews would know who the king of the Jews is and where he's born? They didn't, I mean, I, you know, it may have been. I mean, of course, this is silence that gives me this information, right? It's, just, it's a maybe. Maybe Herod said, I'm the king of the Jews and I was born in Syria. And they go, sorry, you don't fit that. You're not, that's not you. I don't know where this person is, but he's not born in Syria. He's born right here. We're in the right place. We start, our journey is stopped right here. And so he has to call other people, the people that he resented the most. And he has to ask them where the Messiah was to be born. Where did they get this from, the idea of a Messiah? Where? Well, it came again from the Hebrew Scriptures. Moses, and they said earlier, they said the one. Um, let's see, where do we see that? Yes, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? So they know two things. They know, they're trying to find out where, but they know the, the one. Is that just, you know, some kind of a statement to the one, you know, the guy? Or, you know, where? No, the one should be capitalized. Moses said that one will come and he will shepherd God's people. One will come, a leader, a true shepherd will come, the one, the prophet, the Messiah, the king. All these things were prophesied. And so as a result, as these diviners, these, 
persons who are looking to the heavens and looking to all resources they can find for their inspiration, they've got quite a, a bag of things that they're coming to discover. And it appears that Herod doesn't know about any of them. Where's the Messiah to be born? In Bethlehem and Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, as it was said in our reading this morning, for Advent reading, that Bethlehem at one time was a great city. David particularly, King David, who was born there, made it his city. He called it his city. And that was literally true. David wasn't saying, well, this is, like I say, where's your city? Well, my city's, you know, Rockville. In fact, we went to see uh, our friend Nick the other day, and he's just getting out of the hospital from a procedure, and we drove down, Wisconsin, uh, uh, what's that road over there? It goes towards Suburban Hospital, <laughs> Old Georgetown Road, and we turn right on the place where they go into the hospital, and there's a parking lot, beautiful parking lot, and I said to Karen, I said, that's where I was born, right in that parking lot which used to be Suburban Hospital, sitting right there in that corner, that corner place. And, but, so when someone says, where, where, are you, where, are you, where are you born? What, what's your city? What would you tell them? Yeah, probably something not in this country, right? A lot of you people. Some of us would say, well, Marion, Virginia. Well, Oh, you live in Marion, Virginia. I, oh, no, no, no. I don't live in Marion, Virginia. In fact, I never lived in Marion, Virginia. I was just born in Marion, Virginia. That's someone I live with who was born in Marion, Virginia. You know, or somewhere else in some place other than the world. So we identify this kind of as if it's something specific, but it's not something that really identifies our whole being. It's just a place where we identified the place of our birth, where the Messiah was to be born. <laughs> Again, that's an interesting little grammar, where he was to be born. Well, if, if, this, if King Herod is the king of the Jews, he must be the Messiah, right? And he was born in Syria. That wasn't, didn't fit their, their scheme very well. And then this idea of Bethlehem, the land of Judea. And we see that Bethlehem was made very famous by David the king. And he endeared himself to it. And he, he, he was a, a proponent of its... Of its, um, of its growth, his magnificence in history during his time and following. But it was destroyed completely two or three times and built back just a little bit smaller and smaller and smaller until finally, up to the time of this writing, Bethlehem was almost like a forgotten place. You had to ask where it was. Where is Suburban Hospital? Well, where is Alney Hospital? where my son David was born. Where is it? Let's just go to Olney and we'll find it, right? You go to Olney and that's a massive hospital over there and the place where he was born is right there before you, at the entrance on the left as you go in. That white building used to be there. And so as a result, time had changed this. And so not only is this idea, it's a humble place, but they don't even know where it is themselves, many people. It's not, it's not some place everybody goes. Let's go to Bethlehem. They got a really good show tonight. No, you don't go to Bethlehem. Nothing there. So as a result, it wasn't really until after the whole Byzantine era, the time when Rome declared Christianity as its 
religion that Bethlehem really rose back up into prominence. It was just a little small cow town, basically, at this time. But for the registry, you had to go back to that place, that place of your family origin. And so that's why Joseph and Mary were headed back there. And so as a result, we see this, it's almost like an interlude here. It, it, it kind of catches us. That Bethlehem, the land of Judah. Notice, notice it says, you Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. It's in Micah chapter 2, 5, verses 2 and 5. So then Herod starts doing one of these, you know. Jesus, what did Jesus call him? A fox. That old fox. Although I think actually he was referring to his son at that time. But you know, that dude, Herod was also a fox. Verse 7, that Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. And he sent to Bethlehem. Again, there's no question when this was. The exact time it appeared, and their answer was now in Bethlehem, he said. And he says with great sincerity and awe and humility, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, <laughs> report to me so that I too may go and worship him. I'm going to go and show him some very special attention. After they heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen, when it rose, went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. Now, I have no idea how that precision can be achieved. And I'm, I'm guessing neither did they. It's an astounding thing that God guides these irrelevant people in another land practicing another kind of religious form. And he brings them into the scene here in order to do something. And that is to satisfy his own good pleasure that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Isn't it amazing how God uses all kinds of things to accomplish his will? You know, we want to quickly set this out. That's not God's will. Oh, that's not God's will. Or how could be that God's will? Just wait a while. He's going to be lifted up in everything. Eventually, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Not now. Oh, he's not now. Our country's in trouble. You read these books. Oh, America's in trouble. Christianity is diminishing. Oh, America's in trouble. Or there's some other country in trouble. They used to be a Christian nation. Now they're not. Blah, 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 blah. Every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the seas. Do you believe that? Or are you going to believe your very narrow focus? Oh, look, it's bad. It's bad. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. <laughs> the star, you know, we, we, I don't know if it's literally, you know, a beam was coming right down on the house or something you know, from billions and billions of light years away. <laughs> Somehow there was this precise identifier that they were even overjoyed, they were astounded that there was this precision that took place in the discovery of whatever there was going to be in that house. And where did they find it? They found it over this palace 
in Jerusalem, built by the hands of Herod, right? No, they find it in a broken down cow town. And where in the cow town do they find it? Over some stable stall. And when they go in, who do they find? You know, the pictures of the nativity that we see in art, with the beams coming out, you know, like this. Everybody, Joseph, Mary, maybe a couple of shepherds, they got beams coming out because they're, you know, this is so identifiable. They find us. Baby? With his mother Mary? It's all in there? They bowed down to him and worshiped him. Whatever they thought he was, whatever they, they were, they're trying to find out what he was. When they find this person in this little cow town, in a stable in the cow town, sitting in a cleared out manger. You know what a manger is? It's, a, it's one of those things like that that they build and they put what they put in it. Food, hay for the animals. They cleared that out and put some new hay in there for Jesus to be comfortable, I guess. She, and then we see this, this, again, we see this, this harmony coming into play. And he was in a baby wrapped in cloths. You will find him lying in a manger. They bowed down. They worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and mirth. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Something about dreams. God, God loves dreams, doesn't he? Um, there's a, I guess there's a science of the dreams. Now, my, my view of dreams is this. When you have a vivid dream, it's a vivid dream. But sometimes God can give you a dream and you think, oh, I, can't, I can't just walk away from that. I'm, I can't forget that. Sh- something's up shaping about that. Something significant about that. I, I remember a very important time in my life when I was trying to make a very big decision. It was something I didn't want to do. And as we were all being dismissed from this little conference we were in, the, one of the persons raised his hand and he said, this is a very important decision we're going to make together. He said, and, I, and we're all going to bed. He said, I, I just, I wouldn't overlook the importance of what you might dream about tonight. I remember thinking, it's one of the problems I don't like about this group. <laughs> you know, these guys are way too spiritual for me. I mean, I literally think, thought that, thinking, uh, yeah. We're all, we're all, I don't have other people doing it. We're going, oh, yeah, so we're going to definitely pay attention to our dreams tonight. Because if I pay attention to my dreams, you know, people get killed in my dreams, you know what I mean? I, I have terrible dreams. I lose my salvation, you know. Everybody hates me. I'm going to hell, you know. I have to kind of fight my way back into the kingdom or something. However, when certain dreams come, they're significant. And that's all I'm going to say about that. They had a significant dream. There's no real evidence to say they're dream, dream followers, but something came in a dream, something impressed them so powerfully. That guy in Jerusalem, he's, he's bad news. Care would probably have been glad to kill every child in Bethlehem and then kill the three guys that came and told him. And they went at night, so no one knows that they even did it. However, when they were gone, 
an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Hey, what's the urgency, angel? You know, what's the urgency? We're back in Nazareth, right? We're, it's two years later. No, it wasn't two years later. It wasn't in Nazareth. They're in Bethlehem, and they're still in that very precarious position where they've got one night to sleep places, and next night they're not going to have any place to sleep. But on top of that, big trouble is coming. And he gets awakened. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. You know, oh, the, oh the, the amazement, isn't it? When God speaks to us and says the strangest things. Get up and take this child and go to Egypt. Egypt was in treaty relationship to Israel, but it was this enemy that everybody... You don't go to you know, Egypt on the holidays, right? Because you might find yourself in bondage there. It was not a safe place to go visit. But he tells him to go to that place. <laughs> Get up. It's another amazing thing it comes to my mind. This man named Abraham, he goes out on the stars of the sky like the knot holes in the ceiling, right? Looks up and says, I'm going to give you by a descendant all, all the generations are going to be blessed because of the seed that's coming out of you. And it was a fairly short time later, in fact, in the next era, God says, Abraham, take your son, your only son, the son you love, Isaac, and bring him before me so I can admire him with you. He says, take him a mountain I will show you and sacrifice him there. It says the next morning, what happened? Got up, saddled the donkey, took the wood and the fire. Off he and his son go. There's something incredible, isn't there? And listen, this isn't just old days. This is back in the old days. God still speaks to us. He makes his way known to us. And we listen. That's why our prayer should be, Lord, I'm listening. I'm ready. I'm going to be responsive. You know, even in the Old Testament it says, even now it says to Joel, I've, I've basically said destruction's coming upon you. But even now, if you repent with weeping and mourning, tear your clothes, even now, I will bless you. Even now. And perhaps you hear in later part, perhaps God will turn and He will come and He'll do something different. Perhaps. Even now, perhaps. You see these kind of things. Is it, is it, am I speaking to anybody here today? That's the amazing thing is you can go to Christians and they'll tell you stories, won't they? Those stories of a moment when I, would, I just didn't think I had any chance of anything and then God moved. God spoke. God brought me to a better place. Yet we look back on this, we think, oh, it's, you know, it's all this angel stuff, you know, blah, blah. mumbo jumbo. Well, that's mumbo jumbo, people that, you know, following mumbo jumbo, or malarkey, whatever else. 
But it's not in a scriptural context, and it's not in a Christian context. God moves this way. Do you believe that? How do you believe it? Why? Are you a participant in that? It's because he's done it to us and through us. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt. He didn't sit around and say, oh, I, let's, not, let's not wake the kids. <laughs> they got up, they got on there, they took off to Egypt, to, their, to a known radicalized place. And so was fulfilled what the Lord has said through the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. Who is orchestrating all this? Who isn't orchestrating the wise men? Who is, the wise men, I'm saying it right. Yeah, the wise, wise men. They're wise men, not the kings, the wise men. Who is orchestrating them? Who is, who is orchestrating all this, using these you know, pagan things to try to bring about God's purpose? Who's doing it? God is doing it. Who's getting the people of the city all disturbed and upset? Because these guys aren't traitors. These guys are you know, some kind of a diviners. They got some information about who's the king. Who did all that? Where'd that come from? God is orchestrating this. What about Herod himself, whose very intention was to destroy and kill Jesus, and he had all the tools he needed to do it? Who did that? God did it. And who is touching the wise men, telling him to get out of here? Who is speaking to Joseph and saying, take him out of here as quickly? As if, you know... He, the angel found out something and said, oh man, well, we better get down there right now, God. Something's wrong down there. It looks to me like Herod's going to try to kill Jesus tonight. <laughs> Jesus is as safe as he could possibly be. Safe as he could possibly be. Joseph is killed by a lion and Jacob is so, Israel is so upset. Right? So upset because my son is dead. And so they go try to do a little scheme to get some bread, right? Some food and bread in Egypt. They come back and they've done, you know, Joseph himself is the one who's orchestrating all this. And they find himself in real deep trouble. And they say, okay, we want Benjamin. We want you, you bring me your youngest kid, Benjamin. And then I might consider, you know, re, you know, change my mind on you. And they tell us their father, and it just about kills him. He said, I'm going to guess here. Joseph is no more. And Laban is no more. And now they want Benjamin. My life is worthless, he says. All is against me. Remember that? He was in the safest place he could possibly be. But in his internal heart, he's thinking this is all unarranged. This is all sudden. This is all something that's twisted and something's history's manipulated us or something like that. Mother Nature got us. Sister nature, not her mother. Does that relate to you? Can you relate to that at all? Boy, I, I, I got a feeling we're all really, we're just, oh, I know God's sovereign. I know God works all things together for good. I know that. I know that. I know that. I know that. And tomorrow morning, somebody, oh, God, where are you? Oh, no, it's all going to, you know, nothing. <laughs> what an affront to his nature to worry, to be afraid, to doubt. We do it all the time. And he continues just to accomplish his great will for his greatest glory and our greatest good. Do you believe that? 
just, it just irks out of this text, doesn't it? When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi and Joseph and a dream and an angel and the heavens and everything else that went to this that he didn't even know about, he thinks the Magi got me. No, you are in God's purposes. When he heard that happen, he gave the orders. Well, I can't get the Magi. But I got enough information now. Go and kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and older in accordance with the time he had, excuse me, learned from the Magi. Oh man, it's in trouble now. Then, then what was said for the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they were no more. And when was that written? I guess, you know, the wise men wrote it before they left, right? Because they knew about this. Well, it was written 500 years before this ever happened. <laughs> it's astounding. He was like, that's not really evidence. Well, the reason Matthew, the bigger context here is Matthew is preserving all of these texts and references because he's talking to an audience of Jewish people that he's trying to reach. And he's giving them all of this Hebrew information and prophetic language. Luke doesn't put it in his gospel. Mark doesn't put much of it in his gospel. Some, but not much. Because they've got different people they're trying to reach. But Matthew is trying to reach this Jewish audience. That by the time of this writing, they're already moving on to something different. Voices heard in Ramah weeping and mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, where's Joseph? Is he in Bethlehem? Is he in Jerusalem? Where is he? He's in Egypt, remember? Yeah. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So, he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Chelios was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. You notice he just says he was afraid. It doesn't say he, you know, trying to figure a way. He's just afraid. Because he'd heard that this son, basically an illegitimate son of Herod, whose mother was a Jew, was not a Jew, was now in charge of things. And he was in charge of things. Very short Herod trip, but he was, he was shortly, he, for a short time, he was over the whole thing. Until one of his friends killed him, or maybe it was one of the kids, I don't know. Remember. And um, someone who really loved him. And so an angel, as he was being afraid to the moments of his fear. And some people say, well, this is, this is a gloss. It's obvious gloss because the angel didn't come to him before he was afraid. The angel came to him after he was afraid. So this is just something that somewhere along the line, someone just put this in there. So he's perfectly fine to me. He's afraid. But he's warned in a dream. He's warned in a dream to withdraw to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. 
all the way down to Nazareth. Who was it? Uh, Nathaniel? Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? <laughs> According to God's will, it can. Well, the next time, and, and this is the conclusion, the next time we see this narrative pick up, it's 12 years later. And by this time, Joseph and Mary are surprised when they see this young 12-year-old boy not asking questions of the priests, but the priests asking him questions and he's answering them. And they said, what is this? You know, the unregenerate heart is a hard heart. You'd think that they would certainly know. They'd certainly know. What's it? Tim Timmons and Change of the Spirit, he said that he did a survey of people who, had, who said they had a, a, a life-changing spiritual experience sometime in their life. A life-changing experience. And then he tracked when that took place, and then they were maybe 10 or 12, 15 years later, and he asked them, was that real? Now, what do you think they would say? Absolutely, yes. You know, something like 80 per 90 percent, you know, something like that. By the way, 95 percent of all statistics that people give you are false. Okay, just want to say that before I go on. Um, so there's 92 percent of people said, <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I really don't know. I don't really trust it. You know, I really don't, I don't know. You know, we, we, things that happen to us, they don't stay with us unless we do something. We, we reinforce it. We tell the story. We tell it again and again and again and again. And then we back up from the text and we realize that's what's happening here. Matthew's telling the story. He's telling it again. We're hearing it again. We're discussing it again. It's reinforcing itself to us, isn't it? As a result, we see this projection of the event, the telling of the event. And the unique thing is that in the telling of the event, we see the Spirit breathe upon it and, and awaken us to it. So we tell the story to our children and our children's children until the return of our Savior. What a glorious context the gospel is in, isn't it? What a magnificent story. To God be the glory for great things he has done. Amen.